0: Biz
1: news power hour yeah we are now into the second half of November would you believe it 2021 is almost a thing of the past cracking show that we've got coming up for you today we're going to be talking about a story that is uh, causing quite a lot of waves published on biz news this morning by our most recent partner, Martin Veltz, doyen of South African investigative journalists, he had a look at court papers uh, where South African Revenue Services is suing Angelo Agretti. Now, I guess anybody who's followed the Zondo Commission will know all about Agretti. He's the rather large fella who... Uh, was the very first and most famous of the whistleblowers. Almost got the Zondo Commission into the uh, national uh, discussion. Well, he's being sued for 230 million Rand, including the assets that he took offshore to Italy. There's a heck of a lot more to this story than might meet the eye. That's coming up in a moment. And another new partner of ours makes his debut this evening, Jeremy Maggs. Uh, Maggs on Media has now come to Business. and we will be hearing from Jeremy in uh, the first of his shows, which is up on Business News today, uh, the interview that he did with Gordon Muller, who is one of, again, doyens of the advertising industry. Uh, that's a little bit later in the program this evening. In between, Francois Norkia. Uh, who's our go-to guy when anything happens on Transnet. He'll be talking with us about the what was meant in the mini-budget when the Treasury and the Finance Minister, by implication, said that there will be third-party access to Transnet's rail lines before the end of the second quarter, sorry, the first quarter next year. Before the end of March next year, you will be seeing trains not owned by Transnet running on transnet lines. It sounds dramatic, and according to Francois, it's a game changer. In between all of that, though, my colleague Justin Rowe-Roberts has had a fascinating interview with one of South Africa's top investment analysts. Justin?
2: Lots of interesting developments happening on the JSC, Alec. Firstly, ShopRite, South Africa's largest food retailer. They came out with third-quarter uh, operational updates stunning numbers 10 percent up that's not even for adjusting for the impact of the july riots so jean-pierre was very impressed they also had the agm yesterday where long time and major shareholder christo visa at uh, 49 of shareholders voted for him not to be re-elected to the board and jean-pierre dissects the possible reasons for that also, to slow down forty
1: nine forty nine percent of shareholders say we don't want you, Christovisso, who's the controlling shareholder, to even be on the board of directors Wow,
2: exactly, and Jean Pierre points to um transactions within the board, related party transactions that have occurred over time, and he says enough is enough, so Jean Pierre sort of agrees with the forty nine percent which I found very interesting. Uh, Other interesting talking points, NASPIS and Proces came out with earnings guidance today. Big discrepancy in the earnings per share and the headline earnings per share number. Jean-Pierre unpacks that for us. And then Transaction Capital, very impressive company with two crown jewels now, that being SA Taxi and We Buy Cars, uh, another company that Jean-Pierre rates highly, and he goes through that in greater detail.
1: It's a very interesting point about South African companies, some of the big ones, which are controlled by individuals who have a very small shareholding. Richmond, Johann Rupert's got 9%, but effectively because of structures, he controls the group. He controls over 50% of the votes. Of course, Becker at Naspers nice has a tiny, uh, a relative economic interest in the country, in the company, but because of the, vo- the voting structure, he controls that company. And I guess it's something similar here with, uh, Christo Visa on Shoprite.
2: The shareholders of ShopRite have said enough is enough with the related party transactions. Jean-Pierre says that Christophe Visser has made hundreds of millions through these transactions and he agrees with shareholders on voting against the resolution in terms of him being re-elected to the board. There's pressure
1: on Jared Neves right now, our colleague who uh, looks after the data for us on uh, the Business Power Hour and lets us know what the business community have been reading, uh, watching and listening to.
3: Thanks, Alec. Uh, here are the most access stories on the Biz News platforms. On our website, biznews.com, Martin Waltz, now SARS attacks a see the curious tale of Basasa's whistleblowers, 230 million rand tax bill, luxuries in the detail, that's Asif Mohammed on Rupert's Richmond, and Fortuna Fighter is hugely underrated, that's a review of the Mitsubishi Pajero Sport, were among the best read articles. On Business TV, on YouTube, Yesterday's Flash Briefing, A Glimmer of Hope for Essay, Alec Hogg's Post Budget Insight, and Inflationary Pressures Are Ominous for Growth Stocks, that's an interview with Pete Fellune, are the most watched videos. And lastly, on Business Radio on Spotify, Yesterday's Power Hour, South African author Damon Galgett on winning the prestigious Booker Prize, and Charles Savage on Easy Equity's Roaring Success are the most accessed podcasts. <laughs>
1: BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, indeed, it does change as your life changes. Nadia Swat has got the latest headlines, which could be changing our lives, Nadia.
4: Here are today's news headlines. South Africa's hospitality industry says the government needs to look at all the options it can before reintroducing damaging lockdown regulations. FedHASA, the National Trade Association for the Hospitality Industry, pointed to the government's recent decision to extend the national state of disaster to the 15th of December 2021 as a point of concern ahead of the busy holiday season. As an industry, we are not insensitive to the fact that balancing lives and livelihoods is an impossible task, And we understand that sacrifices have to be made. However, hotels and restaurants are not just a non-essential lifestyle activity, which can be switched on and off to stem the spread of COVID, said Rosemary Anderson, FedHouse's national chair. Unlike many other sectors, the hospitality sector has largely borne the brunt of changing lockdown regulations, despite putting in place stringent health and hygiene protocols, she said. And the DA's coalition ambitions in Johannesburg and Chwane remain shaky and unclear, Giving an update on the party's coalition talks on Tuesday, DA leader John Stiernazen said it spoke to multiple parties, but had not sealed any deals. A meeting between the DA, FF+, ACDP, Patriotic Alliance, IFP and UDM took place on Monday in Johannesburg, in which there was a discussion on coalition principles, and another meeting is scheduled for later this week. But things look bleak thanks to the Patriotic Alliance's partnership with the ANC in Johannesburg. Steenhuisen said that the prospects were better in Schwane. The DA, Plus, Action SA, ACDP and COPE have enough numbers to make up the 108-seat majority needed to run the city, he said. And the Cricket World Cup will return to South Africa for the first time since 2003, when the 50-over showpiece comes around again in 2027. Like the 2003 edition that was won by Australia and where the hosts bombed out in the first round, the tournament will be co-hosted by South Africa, Zimbabwe and Namibia. Cricket South Africa's acting chief executive officer, Poletsi Moseki, said it was important for the World Cup to come to Africa for the growth of the game. And now it's Tim and my colleague Justin, for the market report.
2: Thanks, Nods. The JSEL share index was up near the 71,000 level. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand, 25 cents to the dollar, 20 rand, 51 cents to the pound, and 17 rand, 33 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,871 an ounce. Krugerrand will cost around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is steady at $82 a barrel. And Bitcoin is trading softer at 920,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, global media group and technology investor NASPIS has flagged an up to 12% fall in headline earnings per share for its half year to end September, weighed down in part by higher finance costs. Headline earnings per share, a key, key profit measure in South Africa, is expected to fall by, five, by between five and ten percent. Naspa said in an update that basic earnings per share will rise more than sixfold following the group's two percent stack in ten cent in April. This brought in twelve point three billion dollars. Core headline earnings, Naspa's preferred profit measure and which excludes a number of non-operational items, is expected to rise. By between 10 and 15%, driven by a larger contribution from Tencent, in spite of the sale of part of its stake, the group said. Part of the decline in headline earnings per share was due to a decrease in the contribution of fair value gains by associates, Nasdaq said, referring to changes in how an asset is valued. In a separate statement on Tuesday, Process, the amsterdam rested counter internet counter arm of of NASPUS, said headline earnings per share could fall, fall as much as 7%, also citing finance costs and not going into details.
1: It's quite interesting that 2% sale or 2% of ten cent that was sold by NicePass. At the time, you recall, there were many asset managers who said, unbundle it, don't sell just 2% or sell lots more. I'm sure NicePass were wishing today uh, that uh, given what's happened to the share prices that they'd done that.
2: Yeah, the ten cent share price is down around 40%. So I think that would have been the prudent call to make. And, um, yeah, many, many investors and Bob Van Dyck must be having a hard look at themselves.
1: This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Today is Tuesday, November 16th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The COP26 climate conference might be over, but energy developments are still changing the business world. First, the use of new plastic has peaked as global brands shift to recycled packaging. And the price of U.S. coal? Well, that hit a 12-year high yesterday. Plus, Royal Dutch Shell says that it's going to make the U.K. its sole headquarters. The move could help the oil giant reach its climate goals.
5: The pressure on these guys to change is getting more and more intense.
0: I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The world's biggest brands are using more recycled plastics, especially for packaging. And the use of virgin plastics, that's new non-recycled plastic, has hit a peak and is set to decline. That's according to a study from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. The UK nonprofit collected data from 65 companies, including Nestle, PepsiCo, and Unilever. It concludes that by 2025, businesses will have cut the use of non-recycled plastics by almost a fifth compared to 2018. The foundation is calling for a global agreement on plastic pollution to push forward regulation and investment. Several of the companies they studied are also on board with the move. <laughs> There's a lot of talk over ending the use of coal, but reality shows how complex the transition to cleaner energy is going to be. Right now, power producers are using more coal, and U.S. coal prices have jumped to their highest level in more than 12 years. Our U.S. energy correspondent, Miles McCormick, has more.
6: There is a confluence of different factors. So on the demand side, you've got electricity demand surging back up after The COVID-related shutdowns, um, you've got an increase in exports. But most importantly, you have, as a result of high natural gas prices, a lot of US power generators switching away from gas-fired units to coal-fired units. So demand for coal as a result of all of those factors is surging. And then on the flip side of the equation, the supply side, Because there's been this shift away from coal in recent years, with facilities being shut down and companies investing less in mining, the industry isn't able to ramp up quick enough. So it's become quite supply inelastic. So as a result, you've got a lot more demand, supply unable to keep up, and therefore prices are surging.
0: Miles, do you see the use of coal continuing to rise?
6: Potentially. So it really comes down to how cold the winter ends up being. If if we do have a particularly cold winter, then demand for coal will will keep going up. And it's just going to add to the already kind of inflated energy prices that we have at the moment.
0: What does this mean for the long term efforts to move away from coal? Isn't the trend for companies to do that?
6: Well, yeah, it absolutely is. And the reason for that is that coal is effectively the dirtiest fossil fuel. It emits significantly more carbon dioxide than natural gas does, for example, in, uh, in the production of electricity. So in the short term, it means more coal is going to be burnt emissions. From the power sector are probably going to go up in the US this year as a result. But it doesn't change the overall narrative, which is a general shift away from coal. We've had a load of retirements over recent years. And in the long run, natural gas is what a lot of producers are switching to. So after a resurgence this year in coal fired production, we're probably going to revert to the mean next year and see a continued decline in coal fired power in the US.
0: Miles McCormick is the FT's U.S. energy correspondent. Royal Dutch Shell yesterday announced it's moving its tax base from the Netherlands to the U.K. Britain was delighted. Its business minister called the move a vote of confidence in the U.K. economy, but it was an unpleasant shock to the Netherlands, and Dutch officials launched a last-ditch effort to keep the global oil giant at home. To find out why Shell decided to move in the first place, I reached out to our business columnist, Helen Thomas.
5: The reason Shell gave for the move was really that this is a simplified structure that gives them more options that means they can move quicker and be more agile. And there is A lot in that. It makes it, you know, marginally easier and you can argue over how much to do things like M&A or to do restructurings. It makes it easier for them to buy back shares, which is a big reason for holding these oil and gas companies at the moment. It probably gives them some slightly more flexibility around dividends. It will be a lot easier to manage internally as well. But There is this backdrop that Shell, about six months ago, suffered this real shock defeat in a Dutch court over its plans to cut emissions. And a Dutch court instructed Shell, you know, basically set the company's strategy for it and said, you need to cut emissions by 45% by 2030. Now, given that backdrop, there will be questions about whether that has accelerated the timing of this. I should say the company is very clear that that hasn't played a role in the motivation and logic with this move. But there is that backdrop to it, which sort of is leading people to ask questions.
0: Yeah, and we should mention that while all of that was going on recently, Shell has been under pressure from an activist investor called Third Point to to simplify its structure. And Third Point argues that simplifying will make it easier for the company to pivot towards a greener future. Do you think that's actually the case?
5: Look, these are companies that are going to have to do an awful lot of change in an ever decreasing amount of time. The pressure on these guys to change, both from a legal perspective in the Shell case, you know, they've got these targets to cut their emissions, but also from investors is getting more and more intense. And I think the third point proposal that the company be split is one indication of something they might want to consider at some point that this restructuring will make easier. So for Shell, it's probably all about having different options as they move through this process. And I think this move, if anything, is an acknowledgement that they're going to have to do a lot more in the next few years around this.
0: Let's talk geography for a second, because the UK finally wins one from The Netherlands. They've been losing a lot of financial institutions from the city to Amsterdam recently because of Brexit complications. And Britain's business secretary actually welcomed the move as a vote of confidence in the British economy. Is it?
5: I mean, yes, at the margin. But you know, I mean, I think it's interesting because there is definitely a political question coming up around this sector in that you know, the UK wants to be a leader in terms of tackling energy transition and getting to net zero. An oil field called Cambo, which is off the coast of Scotland, is is coming up for approval. Um, you know, that is going to be very controversial. Shell has a stake in that field. So there are going to be questions that the government is going to have to address around development of new oil and gas that isn't getting any easier. So there's a lot of complicated issues coming down the pipe.
0: Helen Thomas is the FT's business columnist. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
1: Well, I'm delighted to welcome our newest partner at Business, Martin Veltz, uh, the doyen of Investigative journalists in South Africa. Martin, good to have you as part of our team. And your debut piece for business News today, you somehow found out that SARS is suing Angelo Agrizi, uh, the most famous of the people to appear before the Zondo Commission, for 230 million rots. Most people know you from Nose Week and, the, and the work you've done there. And before that, uh, the Sunday Times, Sunday Express uh, report, Feels like you've been part of our lives forever. But where does an investigative journalist get this kind of information from?
7: I, I think maybe it comes from my background in the legal profession, which was very long ago. But I've long ago learned that one thing attorneys or lawyers are not supposed to do is gossip. But one thing the attorneys definitely do is gossip. <laughs> so, I learned that from a from a let's say a legal source that there was an interesting case in the Pretoria High Court that had just been filed. You've clearly spent
1: a lot of time looking through the court papers of both sides, Sars and Agrizi, and, and uh, well, his response to this enormous claim of taxes of $230 million. How long does it take to work through all this stuff?
7: It, it takes longer than I'd like to admit uh, because a, a lot of the time uh, they are insiders writing about something they know all everything about, and I, as the first-time reader, know nothing. Or I work on that assumption. So we've got to try and find those elements that are of wider interest and really to say we're not there to decide the case, we're not there to canvas every detail, but we can give you some of the more important points, and I think there are very important points in this case. Uh, all sorts of issues arise which are of interest, first of all, we are reminded the immense powers that the receiver of revenue has. Uh, if he decides you owe him money and he chooses or he thinks that you might be disposed to getting rid of your assets or whatnot, he simply grabs them. He comes to you and he says, you know, pay now, talk later. So you can contest the claim, but you first pay and then you contest the claim. Now, there are ways around that, and that's part of this this court application is uh, Agrizi is coming back and saying yes, well, but it's not reasonable. You're going to do me untold harm because you want more more than my entire estate. You're going to you know take my home, my car, my everything else, and then you could take a year or two or three to finally decide whether I actually owe you this money or not. Uh, so it, there's it's a it's a power that the receiver has. But it's a very harsh one and I, I suspect uh, that at least some judges would be loath to apply it just off like that without very careful consideration of these circumstances. The other issue here which was of great interest to me and maybe is not as fully canvassed in our story as I would have liked in retrospect, and that is there is a regulation Um a law related to the Zondo uh, commission which says you can't be prosecuted on the basis of any evidence that you lead or that arises from evidence that you lead now that's that's criminal con- uh, uh, prosecution and in this case Agreethi is being prosecuted in fact he's been arrested twice and there are two separate cases uh, so I, I don't know how they're going to get around that particular provision. But the other thing is, I think everybody thought, well, a whistleblower is, will be rewarded for his honesty and whatever, that he won't be prosecuted. But it didn't say he won't be taxed. And the tax man is as frightening as, as the cops. So, um, yeah, that's – so there are many very interesting elements to this story.
1: Agreed to you, the time he was most – visible in the public eye, was when he was giving that riveting testimony to the Zondo Commission, almost got Zondo into uh, the daily discussions. What's he been up to since then? As you say, he's been arrested a couple of times. Is he walking free at the moment? Does he still drive his Ferraris? Well, it
7: emerges from these court papers, but a lot of evidence is evident in this case because both parties give background. And so uh, the Receiver of Revenue says that he has found uh, offshore bank accounts and offshore property. Uh greets, he answers, that's not news. I applied for uh, the certification from the Receiver of Revenue and from the Reserve Bank to transfer my permitted amount of money abroad. I bought a house. I, I'm Italian. I bought a house in Italy, which I'm going to run as a B&B, and I bought a car. But... That entailed he and his wife between them transferring out of the country 22-odd million, 10 million around each, plus 1 million travel and whatnot allowed. So they took the maximum they could take. Um, then the receiver notes that because the receiver wants him to repatriate his foreign money. That's the that's the argument here, which is another, you know, one lawyer is being cleverer than the other because we don't have a tax agreement with Italy, so we can't collect tax, South African tax, in Italy. But what we can do is get a court order here saying you ought to bring your Italian assets home here, and then we'll tax you. You know, so it's it's again a bit of an argument there as to which prevails. Um, but in any case, uh, the, the receiver says he must bring the foreign assets back because his local assets he he had. Uh, four or five fabulous motor cars. He he admits he's a um, a uh, Ferrari fan, and so he has two spectacular Ferraris costing a couple of million each that he's always had, and then he has a really nice BMW and then a slightly lesser one. So the the receiver says, well, he disclosed those in 2016 in his tax return. But uh, where are they now? And the answer is that they were all sold uh, two years ago, and it it appears that that was part of his raising cash to transfer abroad. So it's all, and uh, I I suspect there are many wealthy people in Johannesburg who have realized assets to take their cash abroad in recent years because of anxieties about South Africa's economy and so on. So, But... It said the receiver's argument is, uh, oh, and your house is owned in a trust, and so, you know, we don't know where we can access that. Uh, But uh, our our guess is that we'll only be able to recover just over 1% of what we reckon you owe us from your foreign assets, whereas if you bring your foreign assets home, we can push it up to 14%. But, But that does give you some idea of the outrageous figures which the receiver can drive at when he adds his penalties and his interest, I mean, uh, I, I, I think the, the the penalty is almost double the actual tax plus interest. So I think the pen, the actual tax is about eighty million, and the balance is penalty and an interest. So there are there are many fascinating elements to this case. Um, uh, Agrizi has um, challenged the receiver and has said, your calculations are all wrong. Your person who did the audit doesn't understand bookkeeping. Uh, and one one of the things which he issues his raised, which I think is a, a mistake that features quite often liquidations, for example, in my experience, he says, I, I transfer, I have... Um, Five or six bank accounts. I have a gold card and a silver card and a credit card and another card and a platinum card. And uh, and as it suits me, I transfer money from one account to the other. But the receiver has, on each occasion, seen it as an amount coming into one of his accounts without taking into account that it's, in fact, coming from another account. So he's being double invoiced, as it were. He's being counted twice on all these figures, and he says if you actually work out these transfers from one account to the other, the the tax owed is almost nil. So I'm sure there are many arguments that remain, but he says he wants these to be considered, and he sent in a submission of a couple of hundred pages from his tax consultant, and now the receiver has taken a bit of fright and said we can't answer straight away, we'll only come back with our answer at the end of February next year. So it's a question, are they going to hold off with their application? We don't know. It hasn't been heard yet. Or or are they going to pursue his bringing back everything, even though they haven't a final decision on what he actually owes?
8: (laughs) How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business, business banks on us. Standard Bank, it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply.
2: I'm Justin Roberts of Business, and with me today is ProTier Capital Management founder Jean Pierre Fister. Shoprite came out with a quarterly update and they hosted their AGM yesterday. Let's start with the quarterly update. If I'm not mistaken, they didn't adjust for the impact of the civil unrest in July during the period and still managed to impressively beat the numbers from the prior period. What was your take?
9: I just, and yes, correct. I think uh, a strong quarterly update from uh, Shoprite. Uh, I think it shows that, notwithstanding this very negative political situation and sentiment in the country, especially after the, the riots in KZN. Um, the the bottom of the pyramid, the typical man in the street, is still buying food, looking for the best deal to do that, and ShopRite is offering good value for money. Uh, and they've therefore still dominated this lower end of the market with their ShopRite brand. But at the same time, they're also uh, nipping at the heels of Woolies, If you look at um, what ShopRite have done in terms of going up market and the 6060 delivery app, which has been very successful. So well done to to ShopRite. One can see from this quarterly update that the management team is focused and that um, their plans are progressing well to gain market share in South Africa.
2: Do you think this is more as a result of them stealing market share from the likes of Pick and Pay and Woolworths? or more due to the economic circumstances in the country and more consumers shopping down?
9: So these days, one, one can't go to a source and get the market share information as you could in the old days. You need to wait for the companies to all report and then add up the, the revenue and think what the informal markets' food revenue would be to get an idea about the whole industry. But I would guess that ShopRite probably gained market share from their competitors. Um, given that they've got such a strong distribution footprint, for instance, I know I mean we we know there are issues currently uh, regarding supply chains and harbors all around the world and in South Africa. So in times like this, it is the retailer that has the best distribution model and that has the stock on the shelves uh, that would be able to sell that stock and gain market share. And when I just think about my own shopping that I do on a weekly basis, uh, anecdotally, I've seen some other retailers, being out of stock on certain key items. And that would have benefited ShopRite with their backward integration into a very strong
10: distribution.
2: There was a pushback against the re-election of a major shareholder and director of the board, Christo Visa, 49% of the votes against the resolution. What's the reason for this, given that Christo Visa is this business idol in South Africa?
9: Hmm. So firstly, it reminds me at school, when they used to vote for the class captain, um, I voted for myself in the class. Um, and uh, I can see that uh, Dr. Visser voted for himself if you look at the deferred shares. And it was those shares who, at a fraction of 0.1%, carried the vote and allowed him to continue on the board, which means if you exclude his votes for himself, whether through deferred or ordinary shares, the majority of other shareholders did not support his re-election. And the reason for that is that people are probably not very happy with the past related party transactions that ShopRite either had concluded with Dr. Visa or attempted to do, if you think about what was proposed, to dismantle the deferred share structure and pay Dr. Visa uh, a few billion rand for shares that had no economic value, only voting value. And at some point in time, shareholder democracy uh, will show uh, when shareholders are effectively fed up with related parties that uh, try to um, gain at the expense of the economic interests of minority shareholders. And that is exactly what you see that has happened here.
2: Jean Pierre, are you a ShopRite shareholder amongst your array of Protea capital funds? And if so, what did you vote on the specific resolution? We have been
9: shareholders in the past, but we are not currently, so we did not vote in the AGM. Um, And uh, I can also tell you quite often, seeing that I'm a hedge fund manager, hedge fund managers hold their positions via derivatives, which means that uh, a fund, a hedge fund in particular, could have economic exposure to a share without holding the share itself and therefore without having the voting rights attached to the shares which is another reason why, for instance, you see a lot of AGMs show that not all shareholders have voted. And that's because a lot of shares quite often are held by nominees, including investment banks, um, that don't vote the shares because they don't hold the economic interest. Um, so at the moment, and for this AGM, ShopRite wrote the other not vote.
2: Nasdaq and Process came out with earnings guidance today. The primary indicators of performance being earnings and headline earnings. There was a huge discrepancy between the two numbers. Why was that?
9: Hmm. It's interesting, Justin, that you mentioned it's the primary measure of performance because I would actually say the primary measure of performance of these two sister companies or Siamese companies is actually net asset value per share, not earnings per share. Uh, So it's interesting that the company has not disclosed what they expect the net asset value per share would be, because as investment-holding companies, both of these companies, um, I would be interested in that. Notwithstanding that, uh, what you did see in the past year is because of the transaction, the share swap between process and NASFASH, you had a huge gain that accrued and that is included in earnings per share, but is excluded in headline earnings per share. And that is why there's a big difference between those two numbers in this trading update.
2: Biden and the Chinese president on talks about a way forward for the two countries. Do you think this is a net positive for the likes of Tencent, Alibaba and JD.com? And as a result, NASP and process.
9: It's definitely positive for sentiment. The big question is, is it actually going to be positive for, let's call it regulations or the uh, environment within China? And I think what will determine that is not so much the talks between Biden and Xi, but rather the upcoming, um, Communist Party, uh, I think they call it a conference, where effectively the expectation is that she will try to extend his term to more than the typical two terms that was brought in by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, that's going to be very interesting. And, and once uh, Xi has cemented his power to see what he's going to do next, a lot of investors have got a big fright because of the regulatory crackdown in China. So any Changing that, where the regulators in China show that they are not as and, uh, that the animosity towards capitalism is not as severe as what Western investors have thought, that will be good for Tencent. It will be therefore good for process and NASPASH. And the proteo funds, in this case, does have exposure to uh, Tencent and process because we are optimistic that the Chinese will be pragmatic in what they decide.
2: Transaction Capital, also out with results today. This is a really impressive company. Almost two crown jewels now with SA Taxi being the one and We Buy Cars being the other. Is this a business you follow? And if so, what did you think of their results?
9: Yes, uh, I I've, I've followed Transaction Capital quite closely. I also have a, a very high opinion of the company and of the management team. Very good results, strong results. And you don't really see it in the earnings per share because it was very late in the period. That transaction capital increased their shielding in rebuy cars to uh, 74.9%. So what that means is you haven't really seen the benefit of the rebuy earnings in the in transaction capital's results for the past year, but you will see it in the coming year. So much so that I wouldn't be surprised if transaction capital can uh, can grow their earnings for the coming year at between 30 and 40%, given. And this dynamic of the rebuy cars earnings, any really coming into the transaction capital earnings in the coming year, and we buy cars is the star of the show. Very strong growth. Uh, they've opened a a new warehouse in in Germiston. Uh, they bought uh, the dome. It's going to going to be converted uh, into a a, a, a a showroom. And they've indicated the medium term target is now to sell fifteen thousand cars a month. So. Very bullish, that's almost like three times what they do currently. And therefore, if one is bullish on we buy cars, one can be bullish on transaction capital. Share prices may be a bit full at the moment. We don't see a lot of value around 44 Rand, but for the long term, a high quality company.
2: Lastly, Jean-Pierre Storage, a self-storage focused real estate company. They came out with results. They've managed to avoid a lot of the pain that the other real estate companies on the JSC have felt over the last three years. How is that?
9: Well, it's because of their positioning in self-storage. So the dynamics in self-storage has been very different to uh, shopping malls and offices and residential. Uh, I, I can only speak for myself, but one has more stuff every year and you have less space every year. So, so the, 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 the service that they offer where you can store your stuff in their space as a structural growth, uh, um, uh, opportunity for the company and they've done really well to exploit that opportunity in the positive sense of the word in South Africa and in the UK and the UK operations made a significant contribution to these results. And um, so it's really good to see this young dynamic management team, the two brothers uh, really doing well, not only in South Africa, but also in the UK, which shows that this model is exportable and uh, it's probably I would say, the best quality property company in our local market because we don't have a lot of options when it comes to self-storage as a sub-asset class within real estate.
1: Francois Nokia of the Port of Gauteng joins us now. Francois, last week I was in Cape Town attending the mini-budget or the MTBPS, as they call it. Uh, There was quite a lot in there about Transnet, now identified as one of the problem areas for the South African economy officially, and the big news, I guess, is that there is an official commitment that there will be third-party access to the rail lines in South Africa before the end of the first quarter of 2022. How big a deal is this?
10: It's a massive deal. Uh, Something needs to change because rail never had their fair share, and it's gone extremely uh downward or backwards uh, it sounds terrible backwards it, it regressed terribly in uh, the last two years uh, with COVID on the container corridor the line between durban and jobuk it it, it it really got uh, hurt very badly due to all kinds of reasons and that's why there's so much trucks on the n3 so it, it's really uh, it's, it's a it's a game changer if one can be um uh, call it a game changer how badly um, this time uh, in the year, because then the, there's m- more containers coming in than any time of the year, there used to be 170 trains coming in uh, between Heidelberg and Germiston or 85 coming in and 85 coming out. At the moment, there's 35 trains in total. So it's like 20% of what it used to be uh, two years ago before covid Part of it is because the car trains from Durban uh, import terminal and from Toyota you now has to go via Centra around on a 60-kilometer detour to get to Coalfontein. There's no jet fuel train. There's no steel train. And the container trains have also drastically reduced.
1: And how much of this is due to the theft of cable? We we hear, certainly when uh, the CEO of Transnet, Porsche Derby, was last talking publicly She was explaining there was five kilometers of cable that was being stolen from Transnet every day. Uh, Is that affecting or is that a reason for the decline in the rail traffic?
10: Um in, in this leg, uh, 28 trains a week is the car trains It's now, as I said, going to a detour. Um, and I'm sure quite a bit of the container trains is because of that same reason. Some of it, as I said, the jet fuel train is not coming anymore because there's not so much flights out of ORT. So I would say half of it is uh, due to uh, cable.
1: Francois, how are things going to change when you have third-party access to the rail lines?
10: Well I think it's going to change, it's going to be that... Uh, Shipping line or an operator gets a pier in Durban, like Heathrow's got terminal four, or uh, BA's got terminal four at Heathrow, and they'll pick a terminal in, in somewhere in Gateng, and then it will be hub to hub or port to port, pier to uh, terminal or something like that. So if you want to have your stuff in the port of Gateng, and MSC or Costco runs the, the, the terminal in the port of Gateng, then you'll have to take a ship. That offloads on their pier in Durban, and that will cut out the choice because at the moment uh, the, the 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 containers come on the ship, and then if it goes to train, it goes in a heap, and then they wait for the train to city deep, and then they wait for the train to Pretcon, and then they wait for the train to Gascon, and the stuff must be stacked and packed and whatever. Where if if, if a operator has got a terminal in Joburg or Gauteng and he's got a pier in Durban, it runs like a conveyor belt. So then it goes from the ship to the train stack, on the train when the train is available. There's not five choices. You don't have to wait, find the right container for the right train. It runs like a conveyor belt, like the coal now runs, like the steel now now runs, like Sishin-Soldana line. Then you'll have a a port of Hateng to Pier 2 in Durban uh, line or uh, conveyor belt. Everybody will share the line. But uh, the, the operator of Pier 2 in Durban Harbour will have the port of Gauteng and his uh, is own, or her own or company's own train. And uh, it will be much more efficient because there's not five different options and stacking and packing and deciding which one must go where. That it, it, it just works much more efficient if it's, it's like a water pipe. It's not uh, multiple choices.
1: And uh, clearly the bottleneck uh, that you've discussed now, it, it's obvious if, You've got one operator that isn't that efficient. However, if you have many operators, that bottleneck would disappear. But what benefit is that to the country?
10: Transnet will only own the line, and then the the operators will run their own trains on this Transnet line. Transnet will become like the n 3 toll concession. They own the road, they own the the rail, and everybody that wants to run their own trains on this line runs it. So the, the benefit to the country is that rail becomes competitive. And then Durban Harbour works, because Durban Harbour can't work efficiently just with roads. Durban is congested. Those roads around Bayhead Road is impossible. If you want this country's logistics to work and logistics costs to be cheaper, Durban Harbour needs to be working properly. Everybody has now accepted Durban Harbour as the import-export Main point in South Africa. So that needs to work. Otherwise, the citrus can't go out. The minerals can't come out. You're waiting for days for your containers. You must, you don't know when they're coming, when they're not coming. It gives you efficiency. It gives you certainty. If Durban Harbor works, it's got three or four operators that's got a pier in Durban Harbor. They've got a a back. Then the back of Harbor for, for, for those guys, basically for rail sits in Gauteng. So it's, it's much more efficient. It's much cheaper. And that, that's what's so good for South Africa. And the M3 uh, can't, uh, the M3 might handle the trucks, but where the M3 uh, goes into Durban on the M7, when you, we you come near the, the, the M4, I think it's the, the highway, that internal r- uh, highway that goes from Durban, CBD, south to Manzan Toti, it's chaos. The, the harbour can't function properly if rail doesn't function properly.
1: My colleague, uh, Clive Eckstein, was telling me about a farmer that he knows very well who grows blackberries. And he says that this farmer, because he was unable to get the blackberries to market, was having to lose something like 30% of the crop. Now, would, would the yeah, new yeah. system fix this?
10: it to fixing that, that's, that's not only the rail must have private operators, there must also be private operators in Durban Harbour that, say, Pier 1 is run by the shipping company A, and Pier 2 is run by shipping company 3, that... Uh, That that that. And uh, I see Prof. Walters from UJ's logistics department said it in an article this morning. It mustn't be halfway. It must be fully fledged from terminal to terminal. must be run by that operator. They just run it on a transnet line, but they must give that operator, that shipping company or whoever it is, that logistics operator. He must take the the, the cargo for the full way from A to Z and not halfway that it must change trains or operator. Then it will be efficient.
1: But that sounds like it is the intention of government, that government's actually learnt uh, that the control of the logistics system by Transnet is not working, Transnet, Portnet, whatever, it's all part of the same company, and it wants to address that issue. Is, Is that the way you're reading this?
10: That's the way I'm reading it, and I hope I'm correct, because it is a very difficult company to run. 56,000 employees with uh, the onslaught of of, uh, uh, organized crime. The world after COVID, where only the nimble thrive. It's a very difficult company to run. Uh, We've discussed it before, and therefore, this is welcomed. I said it in my second interview with you. I'm very happy that it's happening, and it's now looking like it's going even further, because it doesn't help. It's just a whole lot or the terminal in Chartier. Somebody must have the full line. You must then fetch it from the farmer, take it to the rail, take it to the terminal in, in Durban, put it on the ship. Somebody can take control of it the whole way, private sector. That's when it will work.
1: You're very close to all of this, Francois. With a freeing up or an efficient logistic system, how much wastage are we seeing in the system right now?
10: must be massive, Alec. You see the truck standing for 12 hours, 16 hours, outside Durban Harbour, uh, trying to get in, waiting for a slot. There, there's massive wastage. Will that being cut out... And, and then having a, co- a competitive rail that makes Durban Harbor more efficient. You know, the World Bank has shown that Durban Harbor is one of the most inefficient ports in the world. I can't put a figure to it, but uh, uh, worldwide uh, logistics cost is about 10% of, of the cost of goods sold. In South Africa, it's 13 to 14%. I think it can drop 1% of that, so bring us closer to the world standard of 10%.
8: New audience measurement figures for radio are out from the Broadcast Research Council. So here's the question. How should you be spending your marketing budget on this platform? Media strategist Gordon Muller from GSM Quadrant. You watch the sector like a hawk, Gordon. Is radio in a good place?
11: Yeah, I mean, I think radio is in a good place. Whether they have communicated that place effectively to to the industry is perhaps questionable. Um, I think it's in a better place than most people will give it credit for. And the gap between the two of those could be measured in advertising investments, unfortunately.
8: Can you or advertisers at this point, I wonder, discern current trends from these new figures? You tell me it's an entirely clean slate. Reference that. Let's have a quick look at the methodology. But it's very difficult to compare what we see now to what has gone on in the past.
11: Yeah, look, comparison is is really not on the table at all. It, it is a completely new set of data. And although, you know, we have the temp we're tempted often to to look back, we we, we need reassurance. It's purely a reassurance thing um, that we're looking for. The, the actual trending per se is is meaningless. And it's not the first time it's happened. I mean, if you you throw it back twenty, thirty years ago when we moved from uh, television measurement, uh, audience measurement in terms of questionnaires and diaries even at that point, And we moved to meters. There, w- there was a huge uha because the television audience, in inverted has lost millions of viewers. That no, didn't. It just was recalibrated. And the same with the audience. So I think what we were looking for here was uh, a reassurance that although the methodology had changed, there were no wild cards in there. And I think that's the big story. So if, if you're looking to trend on a specific station per station or day part per day part. I, I think you are kind of uh, you're looking in the wrong space. What you're looking for is the macro drone perspective, the meta perspective. The real news is that these audience figures have not massively shifted. The same patterns that you would normally be relying on to deliver audience are still existing. Yes, there's nuance here and there, but but the trending per se isn't really an option. So you've gone from a diary, which was literally a, a, a document which you would keep and tick-off, tick-boxing, literally, mm. per 15-minute segment to a question which requires you to produce day after recall. So I think that's, that's the big point of difference.
8: Gordon, you make the point that radio stations need to identify themselves better on air. Why are you saying that? What has driven that line of thinking from these numbers?
11: Well, I think it's, it's probably embedded, and, and, and I need to speak to one of the proper propeller heads. You know, I'm a data user, Jeremy. I, I have to <laughs> consult with propeller heads for this kind of observation. But at the end of the day, if you are working on a diary, there was a logo, it was a physical prompt. In fact, there were little decals. So where previously you had to remember what station you, you were listening to, and then ticket. The final iteration had little uh, little logos, basically. And you kind of stuck stickers into where you had been listening, so there was, so to speak, a prompt, a visual prompt at that point in time. But I'm assuming, and I haven't seen the questionnaire, but I'm assuming if it's if it's a a catty method, which is a computer aided telephone interview, you're asking me to recall what I listened to yesterday, and that's a point of difference. So one of the unique pieces of information in the survey this year. Is those people who can spontaneously recall the station they listened to yesterday, mm. and those who can recall after prompting? And I would suggest the gap between the two, uh, as there's no longer a visual prompt in the methodology itself. The gap between the two is is, is classic branding. If I get to the shelf at pick and pay and I can't remember what brand I like, I'm in trouble. When I get to the computer dial or the car. Radio set or whatever it is I'm listening to my mobile phone, and I can't remember what station I was listening to yesterday. That that's that's going to be problematic. So I think, you know, the the good old days of the five in a row song may well have to be interrupted by you know intermittent brought to you by you know. Um, so you you just know what station you're listening to, and it, it works for Spotify. You know, they remind you every ten seconds who you're listening to. So somewhere between Spotify's full-on uh, multiple mention per second to uh, just solid station, but audio branding is going to be crucial. And, I mean, obviously, you know, and I'm saying audio, but the recognition is that many of these radio stations are brands way beyond listening. So at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, how do you brand on, on Twitter? How do you brand on Instagram? How do you brand on TikTok and wherever else the brand is manifesting itself?
8: Gordon Muller, what can we learn about Time spent listening, and why is that an important metric?
11: It's actually less important, I think, than you than you might imagine, Jeremy. Because I think there's an, an inaccurate inference that time spent listening um, is you know is a proxy for for concentration or focus. It's not. It's time spent hearing. Actually, if you go back to the definition of of, of mm. listening, it's not listening at all. It's hearing, and the difference between listening and hearing. Is my concentration so? Hearing is a is a uh, is a, a response of the autonomic nervous system. It's just a spontaneous response. Animals in the bush hear stuff. They don't necessarily go out and listen for lions, but they know one when they hear it. Um, so we are actually conflating the two, and we need to be cautious because just because somebody heard your radio station or heard the ad which was playing somewhere in a 15-minute segment doesn't, on the mean radio
8: they're fully engaged. doesn't necessarily yeah.
11: mean they were listening. It doesn't, and I think we've got to—we've really got to just differentiate that media reach is not the same as advertising reach, and the gap between those two is got to be narrowed down by looking at other indicators of probable focus. And we saw that in, in a recent report, and hopefully you'll, you'll give them some time in the next week or two as well from Cantor on ad reactions the role of the media platform itself in enhancing or retarding the retention uh, or noting or liking of, of, of any piece of uh, commercial communication. So, yeah, hearing and listening are not the same thing. You know, we're, We've been selling our clients listening for the last 40 years, but in actual fact, it's hearing. So we need to just navigate around that. That, that one shifter, that was the same for the old data as it is for the new data.
8: Gordon Muller, either positively or negatively, which stations then are noteworthy?
11: What's what's left off the page is the reliability of the data. Despite the fact there's been a massive methodology shift, your big punches are still there. So, you know, your top stations, it's, it's because, mm-hmm. it's Lesedi, those, those big hitters are still there and heaven only knows why they're not getting enough advertising support. I mean, in an age where uh, cultural inclusion and diversity inclusion mm-hmm. is the mantra by which we're all living, I find it a staggering shortcoming in reasoning Biggest for belief. media people that they don't invest in, in another uh, station. Yeah, and then, of course, you've got Gagasi and Jacaranda who in 2020... Were you know on an, although they have a regional focus, they you know from a national perspective they, they were still in the top ten. And again in 2021, so your two big hitters there um, that have broken into the ALS uh, SABC ALS Metro and Mix remain consistent. Um, there were you know one or two outliers, which I think is kind of reassuring. Uh, 702, I did an analysis of Kharteng as a market, top five stations. 702 broke into the top five if I'm, I'm Take a wing of this one. I think it might have been at the expense of uh, Josie FM. And I think, you know, so what you're looking for very often when you interrogate numbers as a media planner is, is logic. I like to look out the window and see that the stuff out the window looks the same as the stuff on my computer screen. So with the complete reconfiguration of 702, I think you could tick that box and say, well, guys, that, that seems to have
8: worked. Just a final one, Gordon Muller, and very quickly, if you don't mind, uh, a media planner, a buyer, a strategist sitting and engaging with our conversation uh, today. What advice would you give them? What should they be looking out for in these new numbers?
11: Well, I think what you should be be looking for is is a partnership with, you know, on on what the World Federation of Advertisers is calling the the sell side and the buy side. You know, there, there is an opportunistic uh, moment, uh, you know, uh, kind of available right here where I can go into somebody who in inverted commerce has lost listeners and put the boot into them or the buyer side, the seller side could come to me and say, oh, look, uh, our listenership has increased. But the, the, the reality is there's a real audience out there and there's a measured audience. The real audience hasn't changed. What you paid 10 Rand for last week is the same as what you're paying 10 Rand for this week. So I I would really urge that there's there's a responsible reaction to this, there's collaboration. Freeze the rates, freeze the rate card until this new reality manifests itself more clearly at which point you can adjust rates up or down. So guys, you know, let's collaborate on this one. I mean, it, it really is a step in the right direction. The big news, of course, only comes in the first quarter of next year when we get to see some of the streaming data coming out of listener panels and maybe somewhere in the future even passive listening devices but for the moment i would say just resist the urge to turn this into a bun fight guys it's a step in the right direction we've asked for change we've been given change let's embrace it but let's not embrace it at the expense of either the buyer or the seller of the media
8: and that is the state of radio in south africa at the end of 2021 gordon muller thank you very much for joining me
1: Well, thanks for being with us today, this Tuesday, the 16th of November. We'll be back. Same time, same place tomorrow. Please join us for more of the Power Hour then. till then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at BizNews.